Good morning, Church of the Valley. Really glad you're here this morning. You're, you're going to hear from a really good friend of mine, Bevan Unra. He's the pastor at Seabreeze Church in Huntington Beach, and that's where I am. We swap places this morning. Bevan has challenged me in many ways through the years of our friendship, over 30 years. He loves God. He loves the Word of God. He has this ability to dig into it. He works very hard doing this, digging into the Word of God discovering the principles and the truths that God has for living and then communicating them to those around him. He's wise in organization, and so I've learned a great deal from him in these ways. And also, here's a man who lives for kingdom priorities. He walked away from a very lucrative career in advertising to take the role of senior pastor at Seabreeze Church. He also said no again years later when he was offered a great deal of money to go back into that role. And so here's a man who not only speaks well, he doesn't only talk the talk, but he really walks the walk. Would you welcome him on stage? Good morning, church. <laughs> I guess that uh, just keeps looping around. So if, I ever, if I'm ever discouraged, I'll have to pull that video up and just watch it again and again. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a delight to be here with you most Sundays. As Randy indicated, I'm at Seabreeze, the church I pastor on Huntington Beach. Uh, but today, four of us pastors from uh, churches here in Southern California have switched places. And the reason is we, we met um, back in April. And we'll show the picture of the, oh, this is the meeting. I think Randy showed this to you a couple of weeks ago if you were here. Uh, the four of us pastors met and we wanted to um, figure out and talk about a way to to get each of our churches, not just to hear about this larger network of churches called the 17-6 network that we're all a part of, but we wanted to kind of make it a little more real. And so we, we talked about each of us kind of doing, going on the road, in a sense, and kind of taking this tour. And so this morning, uh, Alex Barrett, who is the campus pastor at CIV Alhambra, is in uh, Orangecrest Community Church in Riverside. Josh De La Rosa, who pastors there is they've switched places there in CIV Alhambra. Randy, as he said, he's speaking at uh, Seabreeze this morning. So he is he's getting ready to start service number two right now at Seabreeze. And I thought I want to just give you a little glimpse of what it looks like uh, at Seabreeze. You can kind of at least see where Randy is this morning. So let's take a look at this uh, short video from our website, and then I'll dive in this morning. some of what's going on uh, in Huntington Beach this morning. Now, I never personally intended uh, to pastor or lead a church. In fact, by my junior year in college, I had gotten pretty disillusioned uh, with the church. I was completely convinced of the truth of God's word, scripture, the Bible. I was also convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, uh, the son of God, God in flesh. But 
It was the church I was struggling with uh, as I reached my college years. And then I was reading through the New Testament, and I, I came across the passage where it talks about the New Testament uh, is the bride of Christ. Now, I wasn't married at the time, but I knew enough about marriage and uh, the relationship of marriage to know that if, if I was going to be critical of a man's wife, I was going to be having problems with the man. And so in that moment, I realized I'm criticizing Christ's bride, and he's not pleased with this. And so at that moment, I had a thought. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was a very strong thought in my mind. And that the thought was this, stop criticizing and start helping. And so I did. I got involved. I tried to figure out, you know, what can I do? How can I help? And it didn't take very long for me to learn that it's a lot easier to criticize something than it is to build something. I mean, that's true in every part of life. You know, I knew exactly how to parent until I had kids. And I knew how to be successful in a career until I had to build one. And on and on it goes. And so I started asking God to help me find a church where I could learn from some people that knew more than I did about how to do this in a way that really pleased God. And I prayed for about two years, not every day, but often for two years. And then I heard about a church in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, pastored by a man by the name of Harold Bullock. And it intrigued me, so I decided to, to travel. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks in Fort Worth, Texas, to check this church out. And after the week, uh, the couple of weeks that I was there, I decided this was the answer to prayer, that I, this is what, the, what God has, has provided for me. And so I moved there. I was single at the time and didn't take a big deal to move. I, in fact, I packed everything I owned in one of those original Honda Civics. I don't know if you ever saw one of those. They're like a little larger than a go-kart. So I packed everything I owned in one of those, moved down. Now, the name of this church is Hope Church. And I spent eight years at Hope, and I was deeply impacted by Harold Bullock and other people uh, at that church. I met my wife there. We were married there in Fort Worth. And in fact, we were in a small group with uh, Randy and Cindy Lanthrop. Uh, at that time, I didn't know that um, we would both be leading churches here in Southern California. We had no idea how God was going to take that relationship and use it over time. Well, 35 plus years now. Uh, what I encounter as I talk with other pastors is many pastors are pretty much all alone, not alone in their churches, but alone as they lead their churches They're not a part of any friendships that are bigger than that. And what I've learned is that I'm not smart enough and I'm not strong enough really to, to lead a church over time. And so for me personally, in the 27 years that I've led Seabreeze, um, it has again and again been something that maybe Harold has said or Randy has said or Alex or Josh or one of the other men that, that lead the churches in the network that we're a part of. It's been something that they've said that has kind of got me back on track or has redirected me in ways that I really need to be redirected or has kept me moving forward and, and just not giving up when it was hard. And so I wanted to, as I start this morning, I just wanted to thank you guys. And what I'm thanking you for is being a part of following Randy here as this church has been built. And I have benefited tremendously uh, from Randy and from this church. And so although you're probably never going to travel to Huntington Beach to be a part of Seabreeze or visit there, um, you've been a major part of what we're doing there. And I just want to thank you uh, for the help that uh, unknowingly probably uh, you've given to me and therefore uh, the church. Now, it takes a team to accomplish what Jesus has asked us to do. The mission that Jesus gave us is summarized probably most succinctly uh, in Matthew chapter 28. This is something that he said to his disciples 
after his resurrection and shortly before he returned back to heaven. Here's what it says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we're talking about growth this morning, teaming for growth. And this sets the goal for growth as obeying everything Jesus commanded. If that's the goal, if that's the finish line, so to speak, of of Christian growth, what that means is every one of us has work to do. I've yet to meet a single person that says, you know, I think it was last Thursday that I completed the last thing that Jesus said to do. I pretty much nailed it all now. And I'm just going to be able to kind of glow as I move through life. Now, we've all got lots of work to do. So the question that I want to address this morning is, how do we grow? Now, probably one of the the first words that pops out to you when I ask that question out of this verse that I just read, this passage, is the word teaching. Well, I need to be taught how to obey everything Jesus commanded. Now, that's true, but what happens is when we think of the word teaching, what image comes to mind when you hear that word? Well, growing up in this culture... This image comes to mind. Most of us think of a classroom. You're all kind of sitting in rows, the teachers up front, kind of like what we're doing right now. I'm teaching. You're listening. This is me instructing you, and you're listening. But Jesus called the ones being instructed, not students. He called them disciples. And that changes the context from a classroom context to something that's got a lot more history to it and a lot more depth to it. This is what it looks like today to be a disciple. This is a picture of a bunch of individuals who are learning how to be electricians. They are apprentice electricians. The modern word that makes more sense to us now is the word apprentice. We don't use disciple that much, but we we do use the word apprentice. And for most of human history, this is how you learned. Whatever you learned, you were apprenticed. You didn't just sit in classrooms and gain knowledge. You, You were trained about how to do all kinds of different things. You learned skills from a a journeyman. That's the ones who train apprentices. And they're called journeymen because, well, they're ahead of you on the journey. They've they've journeyed farther. And so they they know more, not just facts, but they know more about how to do life or at least how to be an electrician or whatever it is you're being apprenticed in. But now most of the learning, because our economy has shifted, from agricultural or from even industrial to more service and technical stuff, our our economy has shifted and therefore our learning has shifted from primarily an apprentice model to an academic model. There still are apprentices out there uh, in the trades primarily, but for the most part, we are experienced with an academic model of training. And so you're not apprenticed under a journeyman, but you are now a student under a teacher. What that means is you progress and you grow and you eventually graduate. You get a degree which says that you're able to do some things. But most of us who have been in business hiring people know that the degree only means that you kind of are aware of some things, but you may not know how to do anything. But that's how we progress now. And we pass tests. And and so what this has done is this, this shift in our economy and therefore our learning approach has shifted how the church tends to view growing in Christ. The church has moved 
from a discipling approach to more of a, a teaching approach, an academic approach. And so the thinking now tends to be among most Christians is that knowledge of the Bible will produce Christian growth or character. So the focus is on telling people what to do more than it is on showing them how to do it in the trenches of real life. And for us as pastors who lead churches, we are asked now primarily just to do good messages and and to be good teachers, to do good sermons on Sundays. It's more about that than it is about how well we're leading our church to produce more and more people who actually are getting traction and know how to obey what Jesus said and are helping other people in the process. And so Christians who want to grow will most often say things like this. I, what I really need is a more in-depth Bible study, or, or I'm looking for a more in-depth message. I had one individual tell me that, you know, they became a Christian at Seabreeze. They've learned a lot here, but Seabreeze is kind of like grade school, and, and I need to move on to, you know, high school and then graduate school. And so I'm looking for a church that's got more in-depth teaching. I, I hear this a lot. And what they mean by depth is not what Jesus would have meant by depth, which is how are you going to do the really hard stuff I'm asking you to do? Like love your enemy. That's one of the things Jesus told us to do. Well, that's really hard to do. I mean, it's easy to understand. I, I know what that means, but how do I get myself to love this person who has wronged me and and where are the lines between what do I need to protect and what do I trust? And there's a lot of complexity in that. But that's not what they say or mean when they say, I want more in-depth Bible study. What they usually mean is intellectually deep stuff. Like, I, I want to venture into the parts of the Bible that no one rarely goes. The places where the weeds are deep and it takes a long time to figure out exactly what it means. Much of the Bible is very straightforward. It's very easy to understand. It's just a challenge to do. But there are parts of the Bible that's like, wow, that's, I don't know exactly what that means. And it, it's an intellectual challenge. That's what they mean by depth. Now, I understand why many think this because, well, that's the way we've grown up in an academic world. You advance intellectually. But as a Christian, and I want you to be sure and hear this, you advance not in knowledge, but in obedience. Actually, Here I am. That's how you actually take steps and move forward. Not as you learn more stuff, but as you do more stuff. Now, of course, you need to know more in order to do more, but you don't ever progress just by learning stuff. You progress by figuring out, okay, now how in my life and in my situation would I do this? How would I put this into practice? And when you start doing that, that's when you begin to grow. Not when you learn more, when you do more. This is why we are called disciples of Christ, not students of Christ. The tests occur in real life. That's why we need to be discipled. They don't occur on a test. You know, if you're married, the test is, how are you building your marriage? I mean, you can't sit down and take a one-hour test and answer all the corrections, the questions correctly and have a great marriage. No, you have to learn how do you do that. Same thing with parenting, same thing with finances, every area of life. That's the test. It's not academic. It's real life. In this kind of growth, well, you can't do that by yourself. That takes a team. Now, you can study and you can learn all alone, 
But you can't be apprenticed or you can't be discipled alone. That requires an entire church for that to happen. Now, Jesus tells us why that is in Matthew 18. I want to spend the rest of the time looking at this passage in the New Testament. This is the second and actually the final time that Jesus uses the word church. And in this passage that we're going to go through, he identifies two powerful growth elements that occur when we team together as a church. So let me give you element number one, and then we'll read the first part of the passage in Matthew 18. Element number one is this. When we team together, life gets more real. And that's what we need for growth to occur. It needs to become real. When we team together, life gets more real. So let me read this first section to you, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Here's what Jesus said. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. That sounds like some scary stuff, doesn't it? Sounds very, very heavy handed. But if you're getting uneasy, don't don't worry. This is not talking about showing up at some big church meeting like this and being dragged up here on stage and confronted about the sin in your life. That's not what this is saying. I mean, who would ever be able to do something like this? Well, it's someone who's close to you. Someone who, who is like a brother or sister to you. That's what it's talking about here. They're close enough to personally be impacted by your own sin. And they're close enough to really care about you. They're impacted by you and they care about you. That's what it means to be close to someone. You see, the problem is you and I have patterns of sin that need to change. We all do. We've all got room to grow. The problem is, how will that occur? That's the big question. Well, two things need to occur in order for us to at least get moving. There's a lot more that needs to happen for us to make progress. But just to begin to change, two things have to happen. First of all, we need to be aware of the need for change. What what is it that needs to change? And then secondly, we need to want to change. If we're not aware of it, we'll never grow in that area. If we're aware, but we don't care, we don't want to grow, then we won't budge. We need to be aware and we need to want to change in order for that to occur. And on our own, these two things almost never happen. All by yourself, you won't just say, you know what, I think I need to change and begin to change. You, you need other people to motivate you to change. All by yourself, we remain unaware and unmotivated. You know, when I was single, I remember thinking that, you know, I was a pretty decent guy. If, if you'd asked me, is there any sin in your life? I knew the answer for that. Well, yes, of course there is. But inside my own head, I would have said, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of above average, probably. And then I got married. And then I had kids. And I discovered that I was not near, nearly as amazing as I thought I was. I mean, getting married and having kids really changed both my awareness of the sin in my life and my motivation to do something about it. When I was single, 
I was about as amazing as I needed to be. But now I was married and I, I had some problems that I need to address. I need to fix this. I need to, to address that. Now, the problem was not my wife or my two kids. Now, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, that's the problem. I was just fine until you showed up or until these kids showed up. So they must be the problem. Now, I, I realized pretty early on, they just squeezed the stuff out of me that was already in there. The pressure of those close relationships revealed what was inside. And what occurred in that moment is when I got married and then when I had kids, my life now suddenly had a drop cloth. I'll show you a picture of a drop cloth here. You've used this if you've painted. You throw down a drop cloth for the purpose of protecting, you know, whatever the floor, whatever you're painting around. But whenever you use a drop cloth and you drop paint, you look down at that drop cloth and you can immediately see the, the paint. You can see what you've dropped. I used to be able to, before I was married and had kids, I used to be able to drip sand all over the place and then just kind of move on. But now, now once I was married, my, my sin dropped onto my wife and it impacted my kids. And my personal sin became real. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't exist before, but it, I became aware of it. It became real to me. I knew in theory, as I said, that I was a sinner. But now I could see the impact of my sin with my own eyes. This is why it takes a team to grow. This is why it takes close relationships to grow. All alone, we tend to remain unaware about what needs to change, and we stay pretty unmotivated about changing. You see, we may be fine just wallowing in our mess, but those who are close enough to us to really care about us and to really be hurt by us, they're not okay with us not changing. They, they have an investment in this relationship. They are impacted by us. They care about us, and they're hurt by us, and they want us to change. And so Jesus designed the church to do many things, but one of the purposes of the church is it's designed to be kind of a drop cloth for our sin, a, a safe place where what's true on the inside can make its way outside and people who really care about us and who maybe know a little more than we do, can help us make some progress. It's a safe place where problems can be seen and help offered. You see, whenever you're close with someone, they will confront your sin. They just won't do it very well. They won't do it very safely. And so God designed the church to be a place where it can be handled correctly and intelligently and with compassion. But that can't occur in a setting like this, you know, in a large group like this, where this is the traditional teaching model. And this has purpose. You're learning some stuff, but nobody's growing right now. You're learning some things that you might be able to use to grow, but right now you're not growing. And so that's why this can't occur in a setting like this. Sitting here, my sin, your sin, is not causing anyone any pain. You know, unless you had a big argument on the way here and you're still stewing over it. Maybe, maybe it's causing a little pain there. But just sitting here, everybody looks fine. Nobody's causing anyone any pain. So what that means is in a setting like this, everything that I say this morning, everything that Randy says on every morning that he speaks here is just heard by you as theory talk. Now, it's, it's true, but you're hearing it as a theory. For example, I could talk to you this morning about how destructive gossip is. And you would, you would agree with me or you might disagree with me. 
you're free to do either one. But everything I would say about gossip is, is just heard in the theory category. But if you know me and you gossip about me, well, now I'm upset with you. All of a sudden, the topic is no longer theory. It's real. You know how it's real? It, it hurts. Theory doesn't hurt. You can think anything you want in your head. Reality, that has teeth. That hurts. So it's in the context of close relationships that things get real and change needs to occur. So if you're going to grow, this is a great place to start. But, but you're going to have to take steps beyond a large gathering like this, a teaching moment like this. So the question now is, how does this work in reality in a church? Well, for the most part, the power to grow occurs as we pick a church, we commit to that church, and we form brother and sister level friendships and relationships with a few in that church. We, we can't do this with a bunch, but we can with a few. That takes time. That didn't just happen this month. Or really, even this year, it can make progress this year, but it takes time. But that investment is well worth it. Because when our sin bubbles to the surface and causes problems and oozes out on the drop cloth of those relationships, we now have someone who cares about us to come to us directly and help us deal with this. We have a safe environment. That's why it says it starts out just between the two of you. Just the two of you. Most relational conflicts, as I said, they're not safe. You know why? Because most relational conflicts are rarely contained to just the two of you. Whenever people get upset with each other, do they usually go to each other and sit down and try to figure out how to resolve this and make progress? Hardly ever. Usually what they do is they go behind the back of the person they're upset with and they begin to have conversations with other people. They vent to other people about your sin. That's not very safe. That's not very helpful. Now, instead of face-to-face, it's behind the back. And behind the back, the story of what you did, the sin you did, or the wrong you did, well, it can be edited any way the teller wants to edit it. Now, they can leave out all of the wrong that was done by them and leave in only the wrong that you did. Or they can jump to completely wrong conclusions behind your back because you're not there to say, well, no, I didn't say that, or that's not what I intended, or... No, this is what was going on. You're not there to correct anything. But when it's just between the two of you, you have to consider what they're saying, and they have to consider what you're saying. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to figure everything out, but that means you can't lie about what happened because the person was there. You can lie about what happened to someone who wasn't there because they weren't there. They can't correct you and say, no, that's not what I heard. You can make stuff up behind the back. Face to face, keeps it real. And that's the best chance for getting at the truth. What's, what's been dropped on the cloth here? What's really going on? But what if the two of you can't make progress? What if you sit down face-to-face, you try to resolve, try to figure things out, try to reconcile the relationship, but you, you're stuck because you disagree on what's going on or you don't think the same way? What do you do then? Well, for most, that's where the relationship gets stuck. And that's where relationships many times just end. But in the church... The great advantage is the two of you are in a larger context. 
So what do you do next? Well, here's what Jesus says. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, again, that sounds kind of scary, heavy-handed. Why two others? When we read this, what we tend to read, first of all, is this sounds like piling on. You know, I didn't get my way, so I'm going to get two or three people to agree with me so I can pile on and make you see what I want you to see. But that's not the purpose that Jesus is talking about here. Why, why do that? Well, as Jesus said, to establish the matter. The matter we're talking about is the sin. To establish means to make something firm, to declare it to be real or true. So what this is saying, Jesus said, if the two of you can't figure out what's going on, you need some help. You need to get some good-hearted people that know you and know them and get help from them and figure out what's really going on here. I mean, maybe the one who brought up the problem was off base. Or maybe the person causing the problem needs to hear it from more than just one person before they really can see, well, yeah, you're right, I am doing that. But what if even that doesn't make progress? Well, then the next thing Jesus says, you tell it to the church. Again, this this sounds scarier and scarier. But this is not talking about standing up in public and shaming people. This is talking about going up to the line in church leadership and asking for help. Maybe the two or three of you are off base. But if, if you bring this matter before the leadership in the church and they consider with the matter and they say, you know, we confirm what this first individual said and what these two or three people have also said. You know what's probably true at that point? Is they're right. Now the person who's kind of dropped the sin, has a chance to say, wow, I need to deal with this and get some real help. Or they can just say, I'm going to reject everything the church says. That's a big move, but it takes a lot of humility to say, I really need help and I need to grow. But what if they do that? What if they refuse to listen even to the church? Well, then Jesus says, well, if they refuse to listen even to the church, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. Really? This is one of those verses that you read through and you you tend to think, oh, that's scary. And let me just move on to something else. But this is a gold mine. What Jesus is talking about here is not treating people poorly. He's talking about treating people correctly in line with where they really are. How do you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Well, tax collectors were problems back then. Most of the tax collecting done now is online or through the mail, so we don't really have problems with tax collectors unless we're evading taxes, then we might have a problem with them. But they were really morally suspect people today because they would use the power of Rome to enrich themselves. But what do you do with a pagan and a tax collector? Well, the question is, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. In fact, If you read through the New Testament, you'll discover that one of the top irritations that the religious leaders that they had with Jesus is he spent so much time with these people. He filled up his social calendar with pagans and tax collectors. These were not people to be shunned. These were not people to be looked down on. These were people to be loved. You see, the word pagan means without God. What it means is when a person is making a decision... Without God as a factor, that's a pagan decision. And so when a person 
is confronted by one individual who's been hurt by their sin and they get two to three other people and there's agreement on this and then even the church agrees on that and they keep rejecting and saying, no, no, no. You know what you know is true of that person? They don't want to grow. They, they, really don't, they don't want to take sin seriously. They don't really want to change. So what do you do with that person? You treat them as they want to be treated. You, don't, you, you stop. You don't keep pressing this matter. Now you know, oh, they're not really serious about growth right now. So I treat them like a person who, this part of their life, they don't want God to have a word in this. So I love them. And I wait for the moment where they might be motivated to change. You know, right now, of course, they're not serious about growth. They, they're not factoring God into the equation. You see, I treat my neighbors as pagans. I don't expect them to rise to the standards of what Jesus taught because that's not how they make decisions. So I love them. I pray for them. I share as I'm able to with them. But I don't confront them because they're not ready to grow. They, they, don't, they don't have the same motivation that a Christian does. I don't expect them to take seriously what Jesus said. Now, let me say this. If you're new and you're getting nervous, you have no reason to be nervous. No reason to be concerned. None of this can happen to you unless you decide to step beyond a meeting like this and allow people to really get to know you and you get to know them and really love them and you love them. So it's, it's all of our choice. Honestly, a lot of people, they attend church and they never step beyond just the teaching meetings to where there's really brother or sister relationships where people can actually talk about the stuff that's going on. Now, their sin still bubbles to the surface, and there's all kinds of conflict in their life. All kinds of people are confronting them, but it's, it's usually by yelling at them or emotionally punishing them. It's never safe. It's never helpful. It's never motivating. But it's your choice whether you're going to step beyond Sunday. But what, I, what I'm saying, and I, I want you to hear this, is if you want to grow as a follower of Christ, you actually want to learn how by this time next year you're doing more of what Jesus said than you are right now, then you're going to need this kind of help. There's just no way around this. You're going to need to care about people and have them care about you. You need to be part of a church that you trust enough to listen to and in relationships that you're close enough for this to occur. You see, attending church on Sunday is kind of like visiting Italy. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit Italy. It's really amazing. I would encourage it. But when you visit Italy or another culture, you will encounter the ideas of, the, of a different culture. You know, my wife and I got a chance to spend three weeks in Italy back in 95. And, boy, you go to Italy or any, any different culture and you realize, boy, they think really differently. They've got a very different perspective on life. They, they have a different set of values. One of the things Italians value is food. I mean, they spend so much time preparing for every meal. They're nuts about food. So you encounter different perspectives. You encounter different values. But that visit to Italy isn't going to change you fundamentally. You know, when we got back from Italy, we did cook some more Italian food for a while. But after about a month, we were just back to being just regular Americans, eating whatever we were eating before. So it didn't really change us. And that's kind of what happens when you visit a church meeting like this. It's really helpful. And you're going to encounter different perspectives like, huh, that's, that's, the Bible's got a real different take on how I should handle my finances than I do. 
or a real different take on how to handle problems or a real different take on how to do marriage or what's important in raising kids. Well, I hadn't thought of that. I didn't know that. And you can learn from that and you can be amazed by that. And you'll encounter different values. These things are really important to God. And and kind of my list is, well, it's not that. I've got some of those things on there, but in different order. And so you can visit something like this and you can be impacted. And maybe for a little while you, you might try some Christian things. But it's not going to change you any more than my visit to Italy changed me. You know why? Because I, I, don't, I don't have a close relationship with anyone in Italy. I'm not living there. If, if you really wanted to change to become more Italian, you'd have to move in with a family in Italy. Not just visit as a tourist. This is the same thing that needs to happen in church. We need to take a step beyond just the visiting and the touring and the, that's an interesting idea, now I'll go back to my life. We, we need to get close enough to where we can be impacted by these different perspectives and these different values. So it's as you move beyond a large gathering like this and into smaller teams that God's ways will become more real to you and you'll get a chance to grow, learn how to do those things. The second growth element, I spent most of the time on the first one, so let me mention the the second one more quickly. The second growth element is when we team together, God gets more involved. Here's what Jesus goes on to say. The next verse is in Matthew 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. There's that two to three thing again. But what we tend to do is we read this verse and we think, wow, can that really be true? I just need to get one or two other people to agree with me in prayer about whatever I want. And then it's going to happen. And then if you're a logical person, the next thing you think is, wait, what if two people are praying the exact opposite to what my two people are praying? Do they cancel each other out i I was in texas a couple weeks ago and most of the people in that state were praying that houston would win the world series most of the people here were praying that the dodgers would win the world series so why did houston win did they pile up more people praying is that how god runs things you know it's just it's just kind of a big stat board and more people gathering to pray about houston well then that's what's going to happen you see we read a verse like this and we're so selfish and materialistic that all we can think about is Really? This is the blank check in the Bible and I can fill the blank in with anything? This is not talking about how to get whatever you want in life or how to win the lottery. This is talking about how people change. It's a continuation of the topic. The teeming of two or more to pray is a continuation of the teeming of two or more to address sin. And what it's saying, what Jesus is saying is we need God's help to change. It's not enough just to get some close friends to help us in a safe way, figure out what's going on and help us begin to change. That's very helpful, but that's not enough. If we're really going to change, we need God's help on the inside. We need not only two or three people who care about us, we need two or three people who are praying about us. Who are the two or three people that are praying about you and your growth? God says, Jesus is saying here, when, when this happens, when we gather He says, there I am with you. I thought God was everywhere. Well, he is. But we don't see the evidence of his presence all the time. 
What Jesus is saying here is when two or three of you gather together to pray about another person, you're going to see some things happen that you didn't see before. I'm going to show up in some unique ways. You just watch me act. Why, why two or more? Well, it's because the same idea of two or more, this two or more not only means that life becomes real, it also means that God becomes more real to us. See, multiple witnesses are used to confirm to us the reality of something we see. You know, recently I was down at the beach in Huntington Beach, and if you've ever been there, you, every once in a while there's dolphins that will swim by. So I thought I saw a pot of dolphins. They're just little black specks. And I thought I saw it, but then the waves were moving. I wasn't sure. And so I turned to the person next to me and said, I think there's dolphins out there. Do you see them? And they looked for a while and they said, yeah, those are dolphins. Why did I do that? To confirm. Am I hallucinating or are those dolphins out there? Because if he said, no, I don't see it. It's like, okay, I'm seeing stuff. Not the first time that's happened. Not regular, but I'm hallucinating. But when I turned to two or or three other people, and they all see the same thing. It's like, okay, it must really be there. That's how we confirm reality. And when we gather to declare that the invisible God is real, he becomes more real to us. Not that he actually is more real, but to us he becomes more real. You see, when we gather to pray as Christians, to sing or to hear God's word, it's because we think God is real. I mean, that's why you're here today, right? Why would you not be out doing some fun stuff if you didn't think that God was real? And the way this goes is we move through our week, and most of the people that we encounter, they're not really convinced that God is real. And most of the things we pray for didn't just instantly happen this week. And so by the time we get to Tuesday or Wednesday, we're starting to wonder if this stuff is real or if maybe some other things are more real in the way we make decisions and as the week goes on we we get more and more doubts now we won't say this to anybody but on the inside we just kind of and then we gather here on sunday morning and we begin to sing and we look around us and you know what really goes on inside our head all right i'm not the only crazy one i'm not the only one Now, I understand mass hallucinations can occur, but this bunch appears to be somewhat intelligent. I mean, there's people in this room that they're intelligent people. So I'm not the only one that's thinking this is real. I'm not the only one that's acting like this is real. There's that person there and this person here and that person there. As we look around, we're reminded that we're not crazy. This is why it takes a team to grow as a Christian. If we're not teaming with God's people, then this just isn't real to us. And if it's not real to us, God says, I'm going to treat your prayers in the same spirit in which they're offered. Not real. If you're not gathering together to pray about these things, it's not real to you. So I'll treat them the way they're sent. Not real. But if you take this this serious, if you step into a group and you get real about this stuff, you just watch me show up. So if you really want God to grow you and you really want to see God show up in some amazing ways over time, then I'm just, I'm telling you, the church is what you want to be a part of. It's what you want to invest your life in. Not just the big meetings. That's important. That's, that's, that's a good step. But primarily it's the small gatherings. It's the teams where you're working together. 
It's the groups where you're getting to know each other. It's in these small gatherings where we work and we care for one another and we pray for each other that we really get to see God grow us. So let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, every one of us in this room has a ways to go in learning to obey everything you've taught, taught us. And so I pray that you would grow us. I pray that you would give us a context where we can really build friendships. And I pray for those maybe who are new in this room. I pray that you'd help them find the church that they can really trust. If this is not it, I pray you'd find, help them find the one that fits them best or that is the place for them. But if this is it, God, I pray you'd give each one of us a clear insight into how we can take the next step in deepening our relationships and carving out the time to really build these kinds of friendships where our sin can ooze out in a safe way and be dealt with. We thank you for your, your patience with us and your love for us. We ask it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.